TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. How much do rockets pollute? Are they bad for our air? Tim Dodd asks, what comes out of the flamey end of a rocket? Tim Dodd is also known as the everyday astronaut. He's a science communicator, photographer, and musician. His website, everydayastronaut.com, features videos and information about past and upcoming spaceflight. Tim is clearly a fan and supporter of the aerospace industry, which makes this 55-minute video so interesting, not only to me. It had over a million views since March 2020. Even though Tim Dodd does not come from a climate change politics approach, his research and accumulation of data on rocket fuels, different design of rocket engines, and how they overcome gravity is impressive. And I recommend you watch the whole film, How Much Do Rockets Pollute?, and use the data for your own understanding and conclusions. Here's Tim Dodd. Get more from his own voice and spirit than any intro by me can do. Hi, it's me, Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut. I'm here at Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex in their gorgeous rocket garden. I mean, look at this place. How awesome is this to talk to you guys about rocket pollution? Because there's no arguing that rockets aren't incredible pieces of machinery. I mean, forget the fact that they're currently really the only way we have to put anything meaningful into orbit. Awesome as those flames and sounds are, what's not awesome is when you stop and think about just how much a single rocket pollutes. I mean, some might find it ironic that an organization like NASA, who studies our atmosphere, is okay with rockets polluting it so much. Or... Isn't it weird that Elon Musk, the same person who's pushing for sustainable energy so much with Tesla, also owns a rocket company that runs basically entirely on fossil fuels? And let's not forget about Jeff Bezos, who literally just pledged $10 billion to help combat climate change, is also simultaneously working on a huge rocket that's almost the size of the Saturn V moon rocket that he's going to be launching all the time. I mean, isn't this all just a little bit hypocritical? So today, we're going to do a deep dive into all this. We're going to figure out just how much of what actually comes out of the flamey end of a rocket. Then we'll look at how much different fuels and different engines changes that equation. And then we're going to compare rockets to other forms of transportation and other industries. And we'll even figure out what would happen if SpaceX's proposed Starship point-to-point -point transportation system here on Earth would actually replace jetliners. Would that be an improvement or a massive step backwards as far as emissions go? But that's not the only environmental impact rockets have, is it? I mean, what happens when a rocket crashes into the ocean or into the ground? That can't be good, right? Or what about space debris? I mean, we're hucking so much stuff up into orbit. Shouldn't we be talking about that too? But right off the bat, let me address one thing. I'm no doubt opening up a massive can of internet worms here, but hear me out. We're just going to go over a bunch of numbers and compare them to some other numbers so that you can form your own opinion on the matter. I know somehow climate change and pollution has kind of become a political topic, I, I guess. It, it honestly doesn't really make any sense to me. But regardless of what you think about words like climate change, greenhouse gases, or CO2, let's all agree we probably don't want to live on a world that's terribly polluted 
and we physically can't live on a world that's uninhabitable. So with that in mind, please, please just keep the comments section clear of politics and pointless internet arguments over climate change and all that kind of stuff. And just look at the raw numbers here with me, and we're going to use that to shape our knowledge on the impact that rockets have on our planet. This video will be a roller coaster of good and bad. You'll be like, oh, that's not that bad, but oh, that's that's really bad. Back to, ah, I guess it's actually not that big of a deal, over and over. <laughs> Let's make one thing clear. Humans won't be abandoning traditional rockets anytime too soon. There just simply isn't another form of propulsion feasible with our current technology. Rockets are really all we've got. After all, rockets are simply machines whose sole purpose is to extract as much kinetic energy out of chemical bonds as possible. And just look at a rocket launch. There's an unbelievable amount of energy involved. Okay, right off the bat, we have something to take into consideration. Notice when a rocket is taking off, there's a giant white cloud of smoke that it leaves behind. That looks pretty nasty, right? And then watch as the rocket ascends. The cloud doesn't actually follow it. The exhaust will end up looking much more clear very quickly. What's going on here? Well, luckily that giant white cloud of smoke isn't actually smoke at all. It's almost entirely a giant cloud of steam. And that's because many rockets and their launch pads utilize a water deluge slash sound suppression system to not only keep the launch pad intact, but it also dampens the sound energy of the rocket so it doesn't actually damage itself. By dumping over a million liters of water during that initial launch sequence, most of that water is vaporized and it turns it into steam. And in doing so, it absorbs a lot of energy with it. So you'll notice that many rockets, when they clear the pad, they no longer have that thick cloud of smoke following them. Although some of them still do but more on that in a second. So next, I'm going to list basically everything that can come out of the flamey end of a rocket. We'll then organize and classify those things. Then we'll show which rocket engines produce what, and wrap it all up by showing how much of what each vehicle and each system produce based on their engines and their size and their fuels. Rockets can produce many different emissions, but here's the list of usual suspects. You got CO2, water vapor, carbon soot, carbon monoxide, which will almost always bond and become carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, chlorine, alumina, and sulfuric compounds. There's many other trace gases, but they're literally insignificant. You can barely even measure them compared to these main ones. So we'll really just focus on these primary ones going forward instead of getting into the weeds with all these little tiny trace gases. Out of these main gases, the United States' Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, considers nitrogen oxides, sulfur oxides, and carbon monoxides as pollutants. Think of most of these things like the bad stuff that comes out of cars or like smog in a big city. Chlorine, alumina, and nitrous oxides can actually destroy ozone and are therefore considered ozone-depleting substances, or ODS and have been very heavily monitored and restricted since 1996. CO2, nitrogen oxides, soot, and water vapor are greenhouse gases, or they act like one since soot isn't a gas. These are just elements that absorb more heat than the current equilibrium of our atmosphere. This is called radiative forcing, and we'll get more into that a little bit later. But simply put, if there's more of these substances in our atmosphere, our atmosphere will then have the ability to trap more heat from the sun, it's just really that simple. Chlorine is actually considered a hazardous air pollutant by the EPA, and sulfuric compounds and nitrogen oxides can actually cause acid rain. 
And that's really bad for marine life and trees and, well, I guess pretty much anything living. So now, which rocket fuels produce what emissions? Let's compare RP-1, hydrogen, methane, solid rocket fuel, and even hydrazine-based hypergolic fuels. Going over these will pretty much cover the vast, vast majority of rockets and which fuels they actually use. So let's start off with the dirtiest of rocket pollution, and that's solid rocket boosters. You'll typically see solid rocket boosters on the first stage of rockets where high thrust really matters. Perhaps the most famous solid rocket boosters were those two giant white boosters on the side of the space shuttle. They produced over 85% of the space shuttle's thrust at takeoff. But there's also two massive and mighty solid rocket boosters on ESA's Ariane 5. Those huge solid rocket boosters caused the rocket to leap off the pad in a real hurry. You also see SRBs attached to the first stage of many rockets for a little extra oomph. Solid rocket boosters are typically composed of hydrochloric acid, ammonium perchlorates, and the salt of perchloric acid, and ammonia, which are powerful oxidizers. And then there's also aluminum or magnesium powder. These are then held together by a binder, by a bunch of words I know I'm not going to pronounce anywhere near right. These are usually hydroxyl-terminated polybutadiene, known as HTPB, or polybutadiene acryl nitrile, known as P-band, which makes the propellant into a rubbery-like mixture. This means they emit primarily aluminum oxides, soot or black carbon, CO2, hydrogen chloride, nitrogen oxides, hydrogen, and a few other trace gases. Since we mentioned the space shuttle, let's take a look at its main engines, the RS-25, which ran on hydrogen, or more specifically, hydrogen and liquid oxygen, or otherwise known as Hydrolox. The Delta IV, the Ariane 5 center core engine, and the Centaur upper stage also run on hydrogen. Hydrogen is perhaps the cleanest burning fuel. When you burn hydrogen with oxygen, you literally just get water vapor. But there is a trace amount of nitrous oxides, aka NOx, while the vehicle's in the lower atmosphere, otherwise known as the troposphere, as an afterburning effect of the hot flame coming in contact with our air. Because literally all rocket engines that are hot, which is pretty much all of them, will do this to a certain degree when in our troposphere, which is primarily composed of nitrogen. Next, let's look at a very common propellant which has been pretty prevalent throughout the entire history of spaceflight, and this is RP-1, but again, it's mixed with liquid oxygen, so it's known as Carolox. The first stage of the Saturn V used RP-1, as well as the Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy, the core stage of the Atlas V, the Soyuz, and Rocket Lab's Electron, to name just a small few. RP-1 is basically just a highly refined jet fuel, which in itself is just a highly refined kerosene. When burnt, RP-1 will produce carbon dioxide, water vapor, nitrous oxide, carbon soot, carbon monoxide, which again will mostly become CO2, and a little bit of sulfur compounds. The exhaust is kind of nasty, but it's not really all that different from what a normal internal combustion car engine produces. Speaking of nasty, let's take a look at hypergolic fuels. Hypergolic fuels are those that will spontaneously combust when the fuel and the oxidizer come in contact with each other. This helps make rocket engines extremely reliable as you simplify the ignition sequence. They're also very stable at room temperatures, which means you can actually fuel up a rocket and it will happily sit there ready to launch for long periods of time, which made hypergolic fuels a perfect choice for Titan missiles and other missiles that need to be able to launch quite literally at the push of a button. 
But hypergolic fuels are also used on the Proton rocket, the abort motors for SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule and Boeing Starliner, and the Space Shuttle's orbital maneuvering system as well. It's also very common in reaction control systems and long-duration coast stages for all of these same reasons, being simple, reliable, and stable. But hypergolic fuels include hydrazine, or one of its relatives that I know I'm not going to pronounce anywhere near rightly, like monomethyl hydrazine or unsymmetrical dimethyl hydrazine, which are extremely toxic. Breathe too much of either of those in and you'll likely not live to tell about it. It's mostly the biggest concern if you have unburned hydrazine or a, you know spill some of it while you're trying to handle it. So perhaps handling the fuel is a bigger concern than actually burning it. However, when burnt, hypergolics are pretty similar to RP1, producing mostly CO2, water vapor, soot, sulfur-containing compounds, and a bit more nitrogen oxides than other fuels, since nitrogen is a compound found in the oxidizer, which is usually nitrogen tetroxide. Lastly, let's talk about the new kid on the block, methane, or when burnt with liquid oxygen, methalox. Three of the newest rockets coming online in the next couple years will be running on methane. That's SpaceX's Starship, Blue Origin's New Glenn's first stage, and ULA's Vulcan's first stage as well. Methane is probably the next most clean after hydrogen, which makes sense since it's such a similar compound. So when it's burnt, methane just becomes CO2 and water vapor, and again, along with a little bit of nitrous oxides. Now this might be contrary to what you've heard. I mean, it's a common thing to talk about how belching or farts of cows is just methane and how bad of a greenhouse gas that is. Well, that's true, but that's because it's unburnt. Methane in the atmosphere is a real powerful greenhouse gas. So it's actually better if it's been burnt and split up into CO2 and H2O. Well, at least as far as greenhouse gases go. These are clips from a film about the question, what comes out of the flamey end of a rocket? And what does it do to our air? So let's see some real data on some real world rockets. For this, let's look at a variety of rockets with a variety of different fuels, and we'll actually take a look at how much of what each rocket produces. Let's compare the Titan II rocket, which ran on hypergolic propellants, the Soyuz FG, which runs on RP-1 and has a hypergolic upper stage, the Atlas V N22, which has two solid rocket boosters, an RP-1-fueled main center core, and a hydrogen-powered upper stage, and then the Falcon 9, which runs on RP-1. Then let's compare the Delta IV Heavy, which runs entirely on hydrogen, the Space Shuttle, which ran on hydrogen and two massive solid rocket boosters, the SLS, or the Space Launch System, that is basically a scaled-up Space Shuttle without the orbiter, and runs on two even bigger solid rocket boosters and a massive hydrogen tank and hydrogen upper stage. And lastly, we'll look at Starship and the Super Heavy Booster, which both run entirely on methane. Now, you may have noticed a few things about these choices. First off, I chose these rockets because they're all rockets that have flown or will fly humans. Well, except for the Delta IV Heavy, but you'll see why I wanted to include that one in just a second. But also, you'll notice this selection of rockets covers pretty much all fuel choices. But I should note here, my numbers are pretty accurate. But even direct observational recordings of rocket exhaust gets confusing 
because of how the exhaust actually ends up interacting with the ambient air. There's a lot of little things like how carbon monoxide will almost immediately become carbon dioxide or how the heat of the exhaust turns atmospheric nitrogen into nitrous oxide. Now, because of all these variables, I've simplified their output by lumping together carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide into just carbon dioxide, which is quite normal. All other carbon sources are lumped into soot, and we've just ignored the slight oxygen output that some engines can produce. Now, in general, we combine several sources and our own calculations to actually get a pretty darn accurate total of each vehicle. I'd guess we're probably within about 5 or 10%. And it seems like our numbers tend to line up pretty well with some of the other numbers, which for this purpose is good enough for, you know, comparison and at least relative purposes when comparing, you know, all these rockets together. But do put a little small mental-ish behind all of these numbers just in case. The hypergolic Titan II produced mostly CO2, then some water vapor, nitrous oxide, soot, and sulfur. The Soyuz FG and Atlas V N22 again produces mostly CO2, some water vapor, soot, and nitrous oxides, but because the Atlas V uses those solid rocket boosters, we see a big jump in chlorine and alumina. The Falcon 9 produces just about double what the Soyuz produces, and that makes sense since it burns about twice as much fuel. It should be noted that the Falcon 9 and the Soyuz use RP-1 in the open cycle for its engines. This means there's a gas generator that is very fuel rich, so you'll see much darker smoke coming out of the side of the engine since it has a lot less complete combustion in the gas generator compared to the main engine. It's likely the majority of the exhaust you actually see in the Falcon 9's exhaust trail is from its gas generators. Although all rocket engines do actually run fuel rich in the main combustion chamber, for the right balance of heat management and performance. So there's likely going to be unburned fuel expelled regardless of the cycle type, but just much more when it's an open cycle engine. The Delta IV Heavy is really cool because it produces zero CO2 and just shoots out over 600 tons of water vapor, but as mentioned, it of course will produce some nitrous oxides in the lower atmosphere and a small amount of carbon from its ablative nozzles, which causes its exhaust to glow orange instead of the clear bluish exhaust that we see from the space shuttle's main engines. The space shuttle and its bigger wingless brother, the SLS, mainly produce CO2, a lot of water vapor, a little soot, nitrous oxide, and a whole lot of chlorine and alumina because of those massive solid rocket boosters. Lastly, Starship will produce by far the most CO2 and water vapor purely because of its massive size, and of course it's going to produce some nitrogen oxides. It should be noted quick that these numbers actually differ from what SpaceX published last year for their Starship environmental impact assessment but they were likely worst case scenarios and for a potentially much larger rocket and our calculations are based on the nine meter wide 2019 starship design now before we try and compare rockets to really anything else like jetliners we should probably talk about how rocket emissions have different effects at different altitudes. Now, because rockets burn their propellant in all the layers of the atmosphere, including the upper atmosphere known as the stratosphere, and, well, even beyond that, 
their effects can last a lot longer since they don't actually end up getting cycled as quickly as down at sea level. And seeing as CO2, soot, and water vapor are greenhouse gases, the longer they're in the air, the more time they have to warm up our planet due to a process known as radiative forcing. Water vapor in the lower atmosphere cycles really quickly into clouds and rain, and nature pretty much automatically regulates it, no problem. Although CO2 won't cycle as quickly or as easily as water vapor, it can eventually cycle out in the troposphere by becoming delicious tree food. <laughs> but when you put any of these things really high up in the atmosphere, they tend to stick around a lot longer. Water vapor is actually a much more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2. You can kind of think of CO2 as the thermostat and the water vapor as the heater, kind of. <laughs> but regardless, CO2 emissions in the stratosphere from rockets isn't really that different than CO2 emissions in the troposphere or lower atmosphere. But carbon soot and alumina is what we should really be most concerned about putting in the stratosphere instead of water vapor or CO2. So rockets that have, say, SRBs or RP-1 will produce a fair amount of soot and or alumina. And one study actually showed that they can generate about 30 times more atmospheric heating or radiative forcing than a Hydrolox rocket. And it's actually a little more confusing here because when it comes to emissions in the stratosphere versus, say, the troposphere, there's actually certain spots where there's huge impacts. Researchers found that when jetliners fly in conditions that'll make those condensation trails, which is the right mix of altitude, humidity, and temperature, you know, those frozen ice cloud-like streaks in the sky, that'll actually end up trapping a surprising amount of heat in our atmosphere. One study published in February 2020 by a group of researchers from Imperial College London found minor changes in jetliner's altitude can have drastic changes on their emissions effects. But researchers all tend to agree that they really need to study this more to really accurately calculate and model the impact that stratospheric emissions have. I think it's time we actually compare rockets to airliners and really get a sense for how bad rockets are, especially when they're used for transporting people. So let's do a little comparison of six different vehicles. Six very different vehicles. We're going to compare the three vehicles that can currently ferry astronauts to the International Space Station, which is the Falcon 9, the Atlas V N22, and the Soyuz. Then we'll add Starship as well, along with two really common airliners, the Boeing 747-8 and the Boeing 737-800. The reason I chose these vehicles is because, again, they all carry passengers, and even more fun, the Falcon 9, Soyuz, and the booster of the Atlas V and the two jets actually run on virtually the exact same fuel. The jets run on Jet A jet fuel, which again is just a highly refined kerosene, while the rockets run on RP-1, which is an even higher refined kerosene. The reason I put Starship in this mix is mostly because A, it's freaking huge. <laughs> and for now, it represents a rocket with by far the worst case scenario for total emissions. And B, SpaceX actually wants to use it as a point-to-point -point transportation on Earth. So we'll actually quote the Starship in two configurations, Starship and Super Heavy for the orbital spaceflight missions, and also just Starship for those Earth-to-Earth -Earth rapid transportation that might actually directly compete with the airline industry someday. Now, because we can pretty fairly compare CO2 between rockets and jetliners, let's just focus on the CO2 outputs of all these vehicles. But we'll want to keep in mind that the rockets that emit carbon soot or alumina into the stratosphere 
like the Falcon 9, the Atlas V, and the Soyuz, that's definitely not a good thing. So just like we showed before, the Falcon 9 releases 425 tons of CO2 per flight, the Atlas V, 259 tons, the Soyuz, 243 tons, and Starship releases 2,683 tons for the full stack, and the Starship alone only releases 716 tons. Now compare that to a 747 at 302 tons of CO2 and 60 tons for the 737. But now remember, these numbers have the jets only using half of their fuel per flight. So these numbers could vary a lot. Actually, some of the time it'll probably be a lot lower than that. But I figured this was still a decent estimate of the average CO2 emissions of each different route. And also that can vary too, depending on how many people are on each flight. But yeah, that's not exclusive to airlines either. So now how about passengers? The Falcon 9 can carry up to four passengers in a crew Dragon capsule. The Starliner on top of an Atlas V can carry four passengers as well. And the Soyuz and Soyuz capsule can carry three passengers. Starship can carry up to 100 passengers to low Earth orbit. And then after they refuel it, they could actually take those same 100 people off to the moon or on really long trips off to Mars. For Starship point to point, we don't have an exact number, but considering there's almost a thousand cubic meters of pressurized payload capacity, let's just say 400 passengers could pretty easily be comfortable for a 45 minute flight. Now compare that to a 747, which can hold up to 416 passengers and only 756 cubic meters of volume, you'll realize 400 in a Starship for a short duration was being quite conservative. And lastly, the 737 can carry up to 180 passengers. So now how about their CO2 per passenger? Well, here's where some of these rockets really aren't an ideal form of transportation. With the Falcon 9 at 106.25 tons of CO2 per passenger, the Atlas V at 64.75 per passenger, and the Soyuz at 81 tons of CO2 per passenger per flight. <laughs> but don't forget, low Earth orbit and Dallas are very different destinations. Now compare that to 26.83 tons of an orbital Starship with 100 people on board, and you realize we can actually make some pretty drastic improvements to those per passenger numbers. And then just look at Starship doing suborbital trips with 400 people. It would come down to only 1.79 tons per passenger that's actually not that bad. Now compare that to a 747 at 0.73 tons per passenger, and the 737 is king here at only 0.33 tons per passenger. So Starship actually gets pretty close to a 747, at least as far as per passenger CO2 emissions go. On certain long haul routes with certain passenger loads, it might be very comparable. Sure, in general, it could be over twice as bad on certain routes and things, but at least it's not two orders of magnitude worse like some of the other rockets. But don't forget, now with carbon capture, we could actually almost null out an entire Starship flight entirely. And that's something you just can't do with RP-1 or a jet fuel. You heard excerpts of the 55-minute film, How Much Do Rockets Pollute? Are they bad for our air? The narrator and chief researcher, Tim Dodd, is also known as the everyday astronaut. He asked, what comes out of the flamey end of a rocket? 
Tim Dodd is a science communicator, photographer, and musician. His website, everydayastronaut.com, features videos and information about past and upcoming spaceflights. I'm alerting you to the information in Tim Dodd's film immediately following the two spaceflights by billionaires Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. They are aiming at greatly increasing the number of flights via commerce and space tourism. Also on the website is an excellent scholarly illustrated article entitled What is the Environmental Impact Rockets Have on Our Air? Thanks again to the research and film that you can find on YouTube under Everyday Astronaut or on the web at everydayastronaut.com. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>